Well, good morning, Bethel. Good morning. And uh, so many of you are in from out of town to celebrate uh, Keith's retirement party last night. And I want to thank many of you for coming and uh, making the journey. We had an epic time last night. And uh, so for everybody involved uh, planning that and executing it, thank you. Uh, it was a very, very good day. Um, uh, just for me, I'm, I'm just getting back in town from uh, Boston. I had a great time to study and be refreshed at uh, Labrie, which is a Christian fellowship uh, study center started by Francis Schaefer. And I want to thank Pastor Adam for covering some of the hardest passages in Scripture for me while I was gone. And I know, that's, <laughs> that's what I've realized. I thought I should have stayed away one more week. <laughs> Uh, so we do have a challenge in front of us today. We are going to try to get through, get this, chapters 9 through 14 of Zechariah, which is prophetic apocalyptic scripture, and we have five chapters to do, so I hope you brought snacks. That's what I have to say to you all. So let's pray and let's ask for the Lord's help because we're going to need it. So, Father, it's always sweet to be with your people in your house praising you. God, we know that you do not... You are not limited to this place, but as we come together, as the people of God who are inhabited by your Holy Spirit, there is a special gathering, there is a special presence of you because of the corporate aspect that we have here. So we praise you in song, we praise you with our gifts and our offerings, we praise you as we serve one another, and we praise you now as we humble our hearts and we submit to your word. And we ask again that you would be our teacher, that we would learn, and that we would have courage to obey. So guide us now through a challenging text, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, perhaps the, mo- the most famous speech given in recent history uh, would be by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his famous speech, I Have a Dream. Let's see if I can get this to work here. I don't know, Andrew. There we go. You might have to help me this morning. Uh, In fact, even just seeing his picture, hearing just uh, the title of the speech, or even just the mention of the speech, brings to our mind not only his words and his content, but the intonation, and maybe most importantly, the conviction with which uh, it was delivered. And I want to read a few stanzas to you. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners, will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. Maybe one of the most famous stanzas right here. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. And I think just hearing that speech, it brings chills to our our spines, especially I would imagine to the African American community or any, any minority for that matter. This speech was, of course, a defining moment in the civil rights battle. Uh, and, and, and in this speech, Dr. King painted a very clear picture of what could be. And he delivered it with assurance and conviction that it would be. 
And that is maybe one of the most powerful things about it. And this morning I want to borrow a little bit from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. for my title and also for the main point of my message today. The title of this morning's message is, There is a Day. And I mean to borrow his intonation and I mean to borrow especially his conviction with which he spoke. There is a day. And by that I mean that as the church of the living God looks around and sees what is happening in this world, we see the godless in power, we see wicked getting away with violence, we see the innocent being taken advantage of regularly. It's very easy for many of us to feel discouraged about the way that things are. And discouraged even at maybe the seeming aloofness of God in the midst of it. But we can look at the sweep of the content of the book of Zechariah and the scriptures as a whole. And then we can turn and face this world with all of the ugly circumstances that we're witnessing. And we can say, yes, this is the situation now, but there will be a day. There will be a day when things will change, where evil will be destroyed where the shalom of God will be restored, where our king will return and he will rule and he will reign in power. And that day is coming surely. And that is the message we get. That is the overall tone from this this book. It is the overall assurance and the encouragement that we have from Zechariah. For all of the confusing imagery, for all of the things in the book that we don't exactly know what is being referred to, there are clear points and a clear thread of a message through it out that for those of us living in the middle between the redemptive past of what God has done in historical past and the promises of what is coming, we are assured that there is a day. There is a day coming. Chapters 9 through 14 are really comprised of two what we call oracles. And I know it sounds like I'm pulling that right out of the matrix or something. Uh, In truth, they pulled it right out of the scripture. That seems to be how things go. Uh, But an oracle really is, uh, this is just by way of giving us a bit of an organizational principle. An oracle is a style of speech characterized by looking forward to the messianic king and his kingdom. And so there's really two. Chapters 9 through 11 are one oracle that speak generally, again just generally, about the first advent, the first coming of Christ. And the second oracle that we find here, chapters 12 through 14, deals again generally with The second coming of Christ, highlighting especially his enthronement, whereas the first oracle highlights a lot of his rejection. Now, of course, we are able to look at that and see those two stages because we have the perspective of being on this side of history and this vantage point, looking back, seeing a first advent and a second advent. Uh, I think Israel largely would have thought, well, these are... This is just one story that's coming, one event that's coming. I don't think they necessarily recognized the, the two phases of it. Uh, but the goal, what I'm going to try to do this morning is I'm going to teach through chapter 9, which I think is a bit of a microcosm of the book. And then I'm going to very quickly just pull out one theme uh, from each of the subsequent chapters. And we're going to have to, we're going to focus a lot. It's going to be front loaded and then we're going to blaze through the end. Just for those of you who get panicky when I'm on point one, 20 minutes in. So I just want you to know that in advance, helping you pace yourself. Zechariah 9.1, a prophecy. The word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and will come to rest on Damascus. For the eyes of all people and all the tribes of Israel 
are on the Lord and on Hamath too, which borders on it, and Tyre and Sidon, though they are skillful. Tyre has built herself a stronghold. She has heaped up silver like dust and gold like the dirt of the streets. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea, and she will be consumed by fire. Ashkelon will see it and fear. Gaza will writhe in agony, and Ekron too, for her hope will wither. Gaza will lose her king, and Ashkelon will be deserted. A mongrel people will occupy Ashdod, and I will put an end to the pride of the Philistines. I will take the blood from their mouths, the forbidden food from between their teeth. Those who are left will belong to our God and become a clan in Judah, and Ekron will be like the Jebusites. But I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. So the first point I want to draw out of this is this. There is coming. There is a coming judgment for those who oppose God. Now you hear that line and you might think, wait a minute, you just told us this was a great book of encouragement. How is judgment encouragement? And this is one of the critical points I want to make to you today. Judgment is encouragement. We want God to judge sin. We want God to judge those who oppose him. We just don't want him to judge our sin, right? We don't want it to fall on us. But good news, God has provided a way out for that, and we'll get to it in a little bit. Uh, But how can this be good news? How can this judgment be good news? Pastor Adam made a really critical observation a couple weeks ago when he was preaching through chapter 2. In fact, if you turn in your Bibles there to chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. There's a really pivotal couple of verses right here. In fact, it's almost a hinge on which the whole book swings. Where Zechariah is given a vision of a rider on a horse and many other horses with him. And they go out through the earth and they kind of uh, look around and discover and they bring back a report. In verse 11 it says this, And they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees, We have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long? Will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these 70 years? So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. This is a fascinating passage. Immediately we're confronted with some dissonance here, as Pastor Adam highlighted to us. Peace and rest sound like a good thing. In the margin of my Bible, I have written a note. Isn't this a good thing? But it's very clear that we see that the peace and the rest of the surrounding nation is not a good thing to the angel of the Lord. And the, the rest, particularly the rest, is not a thing of beauty or rejoicing. And I want to talk about this word rest here for a little bit because when we talk about rest, when we use that word, we think about recovering from some fatigue or recovering from some exertion. Uh, I was very privileged to go to this study center back in Boston out in Southborough for a week and a half. And it was a chance for me to recover spiritually and emotionally and to just and to rest, to spend time reading my Bible, to study, to be around other Christians in fellowship for whom I wasn't responsible. And I could go through my day without having to make any decisions except for what was I going to study that day. And that is a restful time for me. It's something that I need from time to time to rejuvenate my soul. But when we see the word rest... Uh, 
often used in the scriptures, especially in these cases, something else is at mind. And it is this. It is unopposed rule. Unopposed rule. In other words, I want to show you a couple pictures. When God creates the world in six days, and then on the seventh day, he rests. He's not resting from fatigue. He's not recharging because he's used up a lot of energy. God spoke and made things. So he wasn't exhausted. He wasn't recouping. He rested as a way to show that his rule and his reign were supreme. His creation was good. It was all good. And he rested sovereignly over it. That was his rest. We're told that God gave David rest from all his enemies in 2 Samuel 7. Again, it's not just that he was fatigued. It was that he gave him a time where he was sovereignly uh, in power, unopposed. Uh, Or if you like, some imagery from Tolkien. Tolkien's dragon Smog, who rests in the lonely mountain, unopposed, unchallenged, until some little guys came along and gave him what for. Um, this report that comes back to the angel of the Lord of rest and peace is not a good report. In fact, it irritates him, it unsettles him, and he anxiously asks the Lord, the Lord Almighty the question that I think ought to be on all Christians' lips, and that's this, how long? How long? If there is a righteous, holy, God-honoring, worshiping lament, it is that question, how long, O Lord? He wants to know the timing of the Lord's righteous reign. He wants to know when mercy will be granted to God's chosen people. He wants to know when God will rule over the hostile nations. And so the Lord Almighty, I love this, speaks words of encouragement to the angel of the Lord. Now here's a fascinating thing, and I say, take this with a grain of salt. This is a bit of speculation on my part, but I don't think much. If the angel of the Lord here If the angel of the Lord here is in fact a theophany, I've talked to you before about when we see the phrase an angel of the Lord, we're just looking at one of the messengers. But when we see the phrase the angel of the Lord, we're looking at the pre-incarnate Christ. And we see him all over the Old Testament. If the angel of the Lord here is in fact the theophany or the manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ that we see all over the pages of the Old Testament, then what we have here is an amazing conversation between God the Father and God the Son, revealing something really interesting, which is the enthusiasm of the pre-incarnate Son to carry out his Father's business and redeem those precious to him. We find an enthusiastic Savior. And it's, it's like finding the pre-incarnate Christ sort of crouched like, how long? Because I'm ready to go. I want to see your rule and your reign. I want to see the rescue of your people. And I think it's a really beautiful picture because if we only have the picture of Jesus in the garden, of one who is wrestling with the cross in front of him, we might be tempted to see him as only a tentative victim. But I think in Zechariah's vision, we find a willing Savior eager to rescue us from sin, eager to bring about the Father's rest, his unopposed rule and reign. How long, O Lord? Because I'm ready to go. I think is what we hear from him. Now the broader point in all of this 
What we see here, the angel of the Lord has this conversation. They're they're anxious to see this happen. And in chapter 9, we see the beginning of it. We see the beginning of God's judgment on hostile nations. A judgment which seems to have many stops and starts throughout history. Uh, But we are assured that there will be a finale to this judgment. We are assured that there will be a day when that judgment is finished. And so the broader point here, the timeless principle that we need to pull out of this is this, that God will judge those who oppose him and his people. He will not tolerate the rest of godless nations forever. And I think there's some personal application that we need to take. First of all, for each one of us, we have to make sure that we know whether or not we are a friend or a foe of God. We have to know whether or not that judgment is going to fall on us as one who opposes God or whether it's going to fall on Jesus Christ on our behalf because he is our savior and we have faith in him. But his judgment will fall and it is upon us to make a decision to choose for Christ. Too many people want to say that I am in a neutral position towards the Lord. I'm not opposed to him. If he's good for you, then he's good for you, but I have other things in mind. But I'm not against him. I'm not in opposition. And I want to tell you this. There's no neutral position. There's no neutral ground. You cannot be Switzerland with God. Or France, for that matter. The reality is this. We are born sinners. We are naturally born sinners. We are born inheriting sin. Just as I was born inheriting male pattern baldness. (laughs) There's nothing I can do about this. You're born in this world as a sinner, inheriting the sin of Adam who sinned on your behalf as your representative, and you added to it your own sin. Not one of us can say we have not. That is our starting point. That is our default position. If you don't believe me, just volunteer for the nursery. And you can see that even the cutest of babies come hardwired with sin. It's in there. You don't have to teach them. You have to unteach them. Sin is right there with us. We have the privilege and the honor and the grace of our God to be able to decide for Christ. We have the privilege to be able to trust in him as our savior. And by doing so, by bowing the knee and, rep- and recognizing him as our savior, the one who came and died on our behalf, that all of our sin that we have inherited and that we have added to it gets poured into Christ. And we are declared not guilty But more than that, all of the righteousness of Christ is poured into us, imputed to us, and we stand before God as those who are justified because of what Christ has done for us. And that is a decision that you have to make in this world. And I would just challenge you with this. Not one of us is guaranteed tomorrow. I don't know the eschatological sequence of things. I don't know the timing of the Lord's return But I can tell you this, each of us has more to worry about in our own personal eschatology than we do all of the sequence of events in front of us. I think a second application for us is is this, for all of us who are friends of God through faith in Christ, which by the way is the only way one becomes a friend with God. We find encouragement that it is God who vindicates his own name and it is God who vindicates his own people. We do not have to do that. That is not a prerogative of ours. We don't have to slay our enemies. We don't have to lead crusades to impose the kingdom of God. 
It's not even up to us to establish the kingdom of God. Did you know that? That is the prerogative of God himself. And he may use us for aspects of it. But we are assured here that God is jealous for his people, jealous for his own glory. And we are assured that he will judge those who do evil and those who oppose him. It's not for us to do. We're told in Romans 12, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. It goes on to say this, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. I think a third personal application here is this. We need to take comfort in um, God's answer to what I would call the problem of evil. You guys hear this all the time. You hear those who are atheists or agnostics, those who are opposed to Christ, say, how can there be a God if there is evil and suffering in this world? It's probably the number one complaint of those who uh, have not trusted in Christ. If there's a God, how can there be evil? Explain that to me. And for too long, Christians have been sheepish about that. And I want to just tell you, that question is an invitation. I mean, they're throwing a big, slow, fast one right across the middle of the plate. They are asking for you to tell them the gospel message, which is that, guess what? God absolutely promises to judge evil. He promises to crush it, to take it down to rule and reign in power with righteousness. He promises to deal with evil absolutely and suffering forevermore. And in addition to that, God is kind and merciful and gracious in that he has provided you a way out from it because you yourself are evil as I once was. They are begging to hear the gospel message. They are begging to hear God's problem to evil, which is the gospel. Let's move to the second point here. Verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow would be, will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations, His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortresses, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, Zion, against your sons, Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. Now, here's the thing. I think it's, it's very common for us and too easy for us to be judgmental, especially of first century Christians, or excuse me, first century Jews, who were looking for the coming Messiah. And we can be critical and even joke about, how did they miss him, right? He was right there in their midst, and they missed the Messiah. It's easy to joke about that, but we know that they were looking for a, a military leader, a political leader, They were looking for one who would rescue them from especially the oppression of Rome at this particular time. And when we read this passage in Zechariah, along with many others, we can see why. We can see why this was their expectation. It wasn't an unreasonable one. This is what they were looking for. 
And what we learn here, especially through history and through the pages of Scripture, is that God would come and he would provide a Messiah who would be a victorious military leader, but it would have, in a sense, two stages. We believe in what is called inaugurated eschatology, which is that at the first advent of Christ, he comes to establish his kingdom for us. And that the second coming, he will consummate his kingdom for us. So there's an aspect of which the kingdom is both now and not yet. And so it's understandable that they would have seen a military leader or had hoped for that. Uh, But some of those aspects are yet to come. And what we see in this this particular passage, we find wonderfully fulfilled on Palm Sunday, which we celebrate today. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and as he rode in, he was, he was fulfilling a very clear symbol that he comes into the city as its king. He was declaring that. Now that imagery might be a little confusing for us because when we think of a donkey, we don't think of some really regal animal, right? We have this picture of this sad little donkey in a zoo or, or a, 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 you know, walking around in circles giving pony rides or something. That's what comes to our mind. But a donkey in this particular time and place and this culture was, was basically the ride of someone who was royal, who was coming in a time of peace. Uh, you would ride a stallion if you were coming in sort of as on a war horse, as a victorious military leader. But you would come in on a donkey when you were maybe being uh, inaugurated uh, as, a, as a royal figure. It was a sign of your kingship. And so when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he comes in not as a threatening or conquering military hero, but as a king of love and peace, but a king nonetheless. And as Jerusalem saw him come in, they understood this, and they understood his claim, and so they lifted up songs of praise coming from the Hallel. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Again, we believe in this inaugurated eschatology. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem, his first coming was to establish his kingdom, to bring it, to give us access to it. Through faith in Christ, we can become citizens of the kingdom of God. This is assured to us in Colossians 1. For he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. But we still long for the consummation of that kingdom. We're privileged to be a part of it. We're in if we have faith in Jesus Christ. We are sons and daughters of the king. We are his citizens safely in the kingdom. But we are waiting for the consummation. We are waiting waiting for his rest. His unopposed rule. And we still long for that. In the third portion of chapter 9 here we see this. That our coming king will bring salvation. Our coming king will bring salvation. Look at verse 14. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south. And the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will will save his people. And on that day, as a shepherd saves his flock, they will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. 
how attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. Here again, we catch this beautiful picture of God's heart for his people, his love for his people. We do not have a thuggish God that delights in wiping out the nations and wiping out people. His delight, as you can see, is in rescuing people from the bondage of sin and restoring them to the life that they were meant for. And that is God's desire for you. The life that you are living right now, even as a Christian, is still far from what is he meant for you. We live in a world that is frustrated for the throes of sin. But God is set about to reestablish his shalom, his peace, his wholeness, his goodness. These pictures here, grain and new wine, are both cultural pictures of good times. Party on. This is what God loves to bring, longs to bring. Salvation, goodness, feasting, celebration, the restoration of shalom, wholeness, and God's rest his unopposed rule, all things as they ought to be. The application here, again, I think for us is this, that when we watch the news and we hear the stories that put a pit in our stomach, when we hear of death and disease and we hear of oppression, when we see injustice, that we have the opportunity to stop and to pause and to say this, yes, but there will be a day. You need to preach that message to yourself. In fact, I've told you this before. You're the most important preacher in your life. I don't know if you know that or not. Because you need to remind yourself of the truth that you've heard in God's word. Yes, but there will be a day. Chapter 9 is fascinating. It really looks at sort of three epochs of time. Uh, First of all, it shows how God begins to deal with hostile nations surrounding Jerusalem. So it sort of deals with the immediacy. And then secondly, it sort of looks forward to the first advent of Christ as he inaugurates his kingdom, bringing salvation. And then thirdly, it pictures sort of the long-term future reestablished shalom of God where his rest will be restored for those who trust in Christ. We will be in that land like jewels. So now what we're going to do, we've covered sort of the microcosm of the book. We're going to blaze through the remaining chapters. And my goal is just to pull one one theme out for each one. And I got to tell you, uh, some of these passages that we're looking at are just, just absolutely difficult. And there's no other word for it. One, on one verse, one of the commentators said, there have been no less than 40 different interpretations. And I thought, oh good, I'm in good company here, you know. <laughs> um, one of the greatest difficulties as we look through some of these chapters is trying to discern when the prophecy was given exactly where it terminates. How soon? How close? How far? And I've, I've kind of given you this illustration before. With prophecy, a lot of times what we described is sort of like a mountainscape. Uh, much as you, if, after you leave church this morning, you're driving out, you look at the Alaska Range. You see what seems to be a, this monolithic range, right? It's just sort of one, one grouping of, of uh, mountain peaks. What you can't see is if you were able to get sideways and, and see the intervening valleys beyond all of these peaks, And so as we get the prophecy, it just comes at us flatly, almost in one dimension. And and we see the events, but we don't know how long between each of these different passages. That's the difficulty. Uh, So anyways, I'm going to try to just pull one theme out from each chapter. 
In chapter 10, we see this. We see a promise of care and strength for the people of God. Chapter 10, verse 6. I will strengthen Judah and save the tribes of Joseph. I will restore them because I have compassion on them. They will be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord, their God, and I will answer them. And down, skipping down to verse 12. I will strengthen them in the Lord, and in his name they will live securely, declares the Lord. Now this is a specific promise that's given to Judah, uh, and there are several other promises that are extended to us as New Testament Christians as well. We always have to be careful when we're going back to the Old Testament and we're seeing promises and declarations. We can't always just take them and say, well, this is for me. We especially have to look to see if some of these promises are restated or, or given to uh, us in the New Testament as well. And we do find them. In 1 Peter 1.5, we find these words, Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And 2 Thessalonians 3.3, But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. And so there are times in this world where you and I feel absolutely vulnerable. We feel vulnerable to evil. We feel vulnerable even to ourselves. We feel vulnerable to all kinds of things. But we find assurance throughout the word of God that he strengthens us, that he cares for us, that he pours into us. How much more as New Testament Christians who have the Holy Spirit residing within us do we have that assurance? In chapter 11 we find, uh, boy, Talk about a sobering uh, passage for a pastor to read. We find a complaint against shepherds of God's people. In fact, the plaintiff here is God himself, which is always sobering. Verse 4. This is what the Lord my God says, Shepherd the flock marked for slaughter. Their buyers slaughter them and go unpunished. Those who sell them say, Praise the Lord, I'm rich. Their own shepherds do not spare them. For I will no longer have pity on the people of the land, declares the Lord. I will give everyone into the hands of their neighbors and their king. They will devastate the land and I will not rescue anyone from their hands. And what we find here is that both the shepherd and the sheep do not have heart for the Lord. In verse 17 it goes on to say, Woe to the worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. May his arm be completely withered, his right eye totally blinded. One of the questions that came to me is, is again, is, is this difficult one to determine. When is this? What is this period of time? What is this occasion that is being pointed to here? And this picture, I think, best portrays Israel's spiritual condition at the time that Christ came, during the time of his ministry, although it could refer to almost any time in history, because we continually find shepherds who are really wolves in sheep's clothing preying upon the flock instead of serving them as they ought to. But at this particular time when Christ arrived, his own people did not recognize him. And the shepherds actually led the people astray. They rejected their true shepherd. Uh, In fact, we see in, in Luke 19, again, sort of when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, riding on the donkey, these songs are being sung, but there is a, there is a moment of weeping for Jesus as he comes into the city and he declares, uh, that they have not understood them. And he weeps over Jerusalem who has missed their Savior and rejected him. 
Now, unfortunately, in church history, we find just story after story of how shepherds do not care for the flock. And in fact, they've preyed upon them. But conversely, how sweet are the words of Jesus when he says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Any would-be shepherd of God's flock should be characterized as a humble servant. In chapter 12, we're given this promise of a victory on that day with this phrase that continues to come up again and again throughout Zechariah. On that day with the angel of the Lord. This phrase, that day, uh, frequently uh, used in these chapters of the book, especially these three chapters, it refers to uh, many things, but especially this end battle campaign, this end battle of all times, Armageddon. Look at verse 8. On that day the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. Now I want to read something to you. I was trying to think about how to wake this up a little bit and help us understand this. Uh, So I brought a book with me. This is J.R. Tolkien's uh, Return of the King. And I want, to, I want to read an excerpt for you from this. Uh, I credit my wife. Uh, she read this and just um, loved it and said, you've got to hear this language. And as I was listening to it, I thought, this needs to be heard to help give us a picture here. So bear with me. It's on page 820. <laughs> uh, this is uh, the riders of Rohan riding into Gondor. His golden shield was uncovered, and lo, it shone like an image of the sun, and the grass flamed into green uh, around the white feet of his steed. For morning came, morning and a wind from the sea, and darkness was removed, and the hosts of Mordor wailed, and terror took them. And they fled and died, and the hooves of wrath rode over them. And then all the hosts of Rohan burst into song, and they sang as they slew, for the joy of battle was on them. And the sound of their singing was fair and terrible, and it came over even to the city. And as I hear that, there is something to rejoice in a righteous battle. When righteousness wins, when God and his people are victorious. There is a beauty to that righteousness. I don't know that Tolkien had the day of the Lord in mind when he wrote those words, but they appropriately capture the joy of righteous battle and the goodness of the Lord's victory. Chapter 13, we see really a promise of a day of cleansing and exposing coming here. 13 verse 1, On that day a fountain will be opened, to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Friends, that fountain that is presented to us here is none other than Christ himself. And what the appearance that we have here is, is that a remnant of Israel who has rejected Christ will survive the tribulation and will turn to Christ at his second coming and will receive forgiveness from their sins based on Jesus. And what we see here, we see the rejoicing of God in all of this. Look at verse 9 of that same chapter. Chapter 13, verse 9. 
This third I will put into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And I will say, the Lord is our God. And what is striking to me about this is here, even at the 11th hour, God is still extending mercy. Even at this point, he is still reaching out to those who have not yet called him king. In chapter 14, we find a promise of the day of the Lord where he himself uh, will come and will reign. That is, he will enter his own rest. Look at verse 9. The Lord will be king. Man, these are sweet words. Just let these wash over you. Think of, if I could ask you to do this. Think of Jesus riding into Jerusalem as a king on a donkey to be received by his people, yet weeping because they miss him. And now hear these words. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord in his name, the only name. The only name. We need to remember that this encouragement that was given here to Judah in their day, it was dealing with their experiences. These would be the hopes that they would have for 400 years of silence until and then one day one emerged who would fulfill many of these prophecies. And yet there's still many to be fulfilled and we are like Judah, those who live in the middle, right? In the middle between the redemptive past, the redemptive history, what God has inaugurated, looking forward to what he will consummate on that day. And the assurance that we get from the book as a whole is this, there will be a day. And I love the words of C.S. Lewis here, and I'll close with this. There are far, far better things ahead than any we could leave behind. Let's pray. Lord, as your people who live life in the middle of what you've done in the past and what you promise to do in the future, we are often grieved at the circumstances we find ourselves living in. And so we cry out to you with words that we think are true and rightful to say, a righteous, holy, worshipful lament. How long, O Lord? We long for your return. We long for your righteous reign. We long for your judgment of sin. We long for you to put down those who oppose you. We long for your rest, your unopposed rule. As Pastor Keith prayed a moment ago, we do say with the early church, Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus. Amen.